0: Live from the biggest small town in America.
1: This is WGN Chicago, radio home of millions throughout mid America.
0: Radio? Well, radio became the Pied Piper to a strange new world.
2: Time to climb up on our big shoulders and get inside our massive heart.
0: This. Is the Saturday Night Special with Amy Gooth.
3: 720 WGN, you heard the woman. This is the Saturday Night Special, and I'm Amy Gooth. Tonight we are talking about adrenaline. It's said that it's essential to step out of our comfort zones in order to truly, truly feel alive. For some, that means changing up a routine to feel the joy of novelty. For others, it's taking a trip of a lifetime and seeing sights. Long dreamed about, and for others, it's shark cages, surfing big waves, walking over hot coals, flying downhill on fast skis, or skydiving. After jumping out of an aircraft this week and finally experiencing skydiving for myself... I understand that. I get it. I do. I see why big waves of adrenaline feel so good. It's not just about the exhilarating feeling, but also about the hypersensory experience and the confidence that comes with challenging yourself to do something that might make your knees positively tremble. So tonight's program, again... All about adrenaline and what motivates us to seek it out, to challenge ourselves, or what prompts us to be adrenaline avoidant. We'll look at the upside. After all, adrenaline is what helped us boost our speed to outrun saber toothed tigers thousands of years ago, and what helps us now to, say, lift a car off of a hurt pedestrian. It's there when it counts. And true enough, some activities in our modern world that might indeed make us a little nervous to try them out probably also come with the payoff of a big shot of beautiful confident, irresistible adrenaline. Secreted by the adrenal gland under stressful conditions, adrenaline increases rates of blood circulation, breathing, and metabolism to get our muscles ready to hustle, whether for our ancient ancestors sprinting away from becoming an hors d'oeuvre or to keep up with the speed of contemporary workplaces in our digital times. So what about the downside? Right. In our hyper-connected, always-on world, our adrenal glands stay in fight-or-flight mode perhaps a bit more than they should. The frantic scramble to meet a work deadline accompanied by a flood of caffeine, well, it makes our body think those saber-toothed tigers are still after us and after us a lot. And guess what? That's wearing us out. And not just mentally, but physically. So we'll talk tonight with an anthropologist about the role adrenaline served our primitive ancestors and the role it's played throughout our evolution. We'll talk with a professor of kinesiology and human development and family studies who specializes in human motivation and emotion around activity, especially around extreme activities and sports, and with a skydiver and base jumper with an unbelievably incredible story of survival and Perspective. So, as ever, we have a lot to do, a lot to discuss, and a lot to learn tonight. And I want to make sure that we give all of our very wise and knowledgeable guests plenty of time to share what they know. But if we have time, I'm sure they will be happy to answer your questions. And I know I would love to hear from you about adrenaline charged experiences that you have had 312-981-7200 producer Lee graham will be the friendly first voice on the other end of the line and you can of course also find me on twitter and facebook and talk all about your favorite adrenaline laced experiences there we will be right back to get the conversation underway on 720 wgn 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth and this is a Saturday Night Special and tonight we're talking all about adrenaline. In particular, we're talking about what motivates some people to embrace it so fully and motivate others to avoid it at all costs. So we are going to be talking all about that, but I want to pause for a second and acknowledge that there is a lot going on in the world uh, Especially today, we're gonna to keep checking in with the newsroom uh, and keep you updated on everything that's happened uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia today. I know it's a lot. Uh, I don't want to be tone deaf to do a show of another topic, but it is one of those topics that that details are still emerging. There's still a lot we don't know, and so rather than devote tonight's show to coverage of that, we're gonna just pause we're gonna wait, we're gonna keep you updated as we know things and continue with the program as we have it. Uh, scheduled, so I, I want to just acknowledge that because I'm sure someone is listening, going, "Why are you not talking about this?" Uh, we're all thinking about it, but we want to wait and make sure we have all the right information. Um, and and as it's being released, we will be sure and share it with you. Indeed. So. So tonight we're going to keep on with the original plan, and that is the show about adrenaline. Um, and it is an interesting topic. As I as I said in the opening monologue, the reason I picked this topic this week is because I jumped out of an aircraft with the U.S. Army this week, and it was extremely cool. I think right now, this moment, there's a very high high likelihood I might have to bleep my audio <laughs> because there's so many words I want to use to describe that feeling. It's really pretty remarkable. Um and I, I, uh, the army, someone jumps with me. I mean, it was a tandem jump, but also someone jumped with me facing me and he had cameras on his helmet and they had this cool video. You can see it at WGNradio.com. And it's, uh, I put a couple clips up on Instagram too, of just kind of the moment I leap out of the plane because it was, it was fascinating and, and, and reactions to it have been interesting and the things your brain will do under duress and under, you know under the influence of a lot of adrenaline is really interesting and it was it was eye-opening to me on a lot of levels and um but it was um i mean i'm fascinated by it so i i really wanted to know i had a lot of questions well why why do we have adrenaline what is it for what is what does fight or flight still serve us for what do we need it for anymore is it like the appendix that's going to go away since it's it seems like it's kind of hurting us now more than it's helping us so those are all questions i want to answer tonight on the program um we're gonna have who is I'm naming her now a regular contributor because we know we're gonna have her back. She was on in the tattoo show. Uh, so we're saying regular contributor, biological anthropologist Dr. Kristen Krieger. She's from Loyola University Chicago. She's going to help us look at the role of adrenaline as it's played that the role that it's played in human evolution and survival. We're going to talk with D- uh, Dr. David Conroy from Penn State who studies motivation and physical activity and kind of the intersection of, of the activities that our bodies are doing and how we feel about it and what motivates us to do it so that that will be a really interesting conversation and we're also going to talk with Brandon Lillard if you google this man and the words base jump you will see an unbelievable video he jumped out of things and off of things and he's done thousands of skydives and I suspect thousands of base jumps at least hundreds he did confirm hundreds so he he knows what he's doing um, but he uh, he had a base jump off the side of a of a mountain off the side of a cliff it It went very badly. There was a very bad accident. He was severely injured, but it ended up saving his life, which is Fascinating. I cannot wait for him to tell you guys this story. You're going to be so amazed at how those events unfolded. But we're going to talk to him too because he knows a lot about adrenaline, both good and bad. So we're going to be talking about that. But I, you know, I, I think it's just an interesting topic. And again, if you have done uh, something like skydiving or big wave surfing or I don't know, all of the things. 312 uh, 981 I'd love to hear from you and talk about what those things are. A, because I want to hear from you because I think it's kind of a cool adrenaline club to be in. But also B, I'm sort of looking for the next activity now that I've skydived, done the skydiving. Uh, shark cage has been recommended to me. I would do that. I would do that anyway. I've said that before. What's a shark cage? Well, it's you get in a cage and you get into the ocean. The cage gets put in the ocean and then you They have like tied stakes and stuff on the outside of the cage to lure sharks. So the sharks will come, you know, you can, they'll come up to you so you can see them, pet them. I don't know. I don't think you pet a shark, but you know, (laughs) you look at the shark, you observe the majestic creature that it is.
0: You hope that's all you do.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a cage. You can't, they can't swim in there.
0: No, but they can bang into it. (laughs)
3: That's okay. You won't die if a shark bangs into your shark cage. I've pet a shark. I was snorkeling once and a little baby shark was around me and I just petted him. And then I thought, Oh, well, where they're baby sharks, they're mama sharks. I should probably Leave. I should probably go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should okay. probably skedaddle. Alrighty. Um yeah. So David, have you ever gone skydiving? No. Would you do it?
0: Um I never thought I would go flying in a private plane. Oh.
3: But, but I've done that. that. So would matter you matter
0: of fact, the pilot even said, Okay, fly. And I went, oh. Huh? And he said, Yeah, fly the plane.
3: Well, I gotta I say. was like, Okay.
0: To the point where he wanted me to land it. Did you do it? Uh, <laughs> I got jitters on the just over that, that big, the white area at the very end of the runway before sure. you get to the actual tarmac. Sure. I'm like, Morgan, yeah, you might want to take the controls. <laughs> take the wheel. Please, because I'm not sure this is such a good idea.
3: Yeah. So I have to give a shout out. So this was a tandem jump that I did. Um Sergeant first class Noah Watts was the the person I jumped with and he was so great and talked me through it. I felt very well prepared, um, going out of there. But at one point he, uh, he said, do you want to steer once the parachute was open? I was like, um, I don't know. I have no, I wasn't, I, I hadn't thought that far ahead. And he was like, when else are you going to do it? I was like, yeah, good enough. So he handed me like the little loops of the parachute and, um, and, and it, was, it was an unbelievable experience to, to be up there that high, to be kind of flying, and, and it, was, it was a cool thing. But I, I would also say the free fall was at 55 seconds of free fall, and I, I fell from between two and a half and three miles up. And the free fall doesn't feel like falling. It feels like flying. It doesn't, I mean, it does, you don't register that you're falling to the earth. So when the parachute opens, you feel like you've just been shot out of a cannon, which is kind of a cool feeling. Are you typing? Are you writing this down? What are you doing? Sorry. Oh, I apologize.
0: <laughs> you like
3: taking notes here. I'm trying to talk with you.
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: So I'm, I'm saying I endorse this. And I think, if, I think that um, if you have thought about skydiving and you're physically able to do so, give yourself the gift of doing it. Just do it.
1: Do you like roller coasters? Sure. So, you, so you're a roller coaster fan?
3: I don't love the um, hills. I like the loops. Okay, but whatever. But the drops—that's fine.
0: Roll up, comparing roller coasters and skydiving. I don't know that that's a really fair yeah, comparison. Yeah, I don't No,
3: no, because I mean you, that's the closest you, thing I've ever done. To you skydiving. really don't feel like you're falling. You really feel like you're just—you feel still. It just feels like there's there's wind in your face, and you have one hell of a view. Because I was up high enough, I could see the curve of the earth, so I didn't feel like I didn't oh, feel like yeah. I was falling. It's not really raging bull, doesn't feel So you that. You, you joined <laughs> the America. three
0: you joined the three mile high club.
3: No, I don't think I wasn't quite at three. It was between two and a half and three.
0: That's close enough. <laughs> That's plenty close enough.
3: It was the coolest experience of my life. I mean, there, again, there's a video at wgmradio.com, but I landed and immediately was like, "All right, let's go again."
0: I'm not surprised. (laughs) I am not surprised.
3: Right. Well, anyway, I'm going to be at some point I'll be finished talking about this on the radio because I did talk about this morning on the Wintrust business lunch. But but it's still my mind is still kind of processing it. So um here on the other side of news, we're going to be talking with biological anthropologist Dr. Kristen Krieger about adrenaline and the role that it played in our evolution, because I have I have many questions that I need to gather the very smart people and ask them uh, all about it, because it's uh, it's interesting the things our minds do when it's, you know, when it's under duress when, when endorphins are going. I mean, you know, we we all hear about those stories where someone like lifts a car off of a person. You know, I, I remember a story about a woman, um, a tractor flipped over on her spouse and she lifted this tiny woman, lifted a tractor, pulled him out, put him in the truck, drove him to the hospital, and only later realized she had um, burns from the radiator of the tractor, the really severe burns on her arm, because she was just so focused on his well-being, and she had all these endorphins going. So I think, I think all of it is very, very interesting. But I'm uh, very excited to talk with all of our smart people this evening about the things that they do, and that I'm sure they're going to help us uh, understand adrenaline a little bit better. And so, of course, we're going to start at the beginning. That's why we're starting with a biological anthropologist because we want to start at the beginning. What made early humans uh, able to escape those saber-toothed tigers and brontosauri and all that, right? Yeah, and the fight or flight instinct is really fascinating
1: that it's that it's continued, you know, on with us today. I mean, I got in a car accident a couple of years ago, and and then that was kind of spiked. I had like yeah. some PTSD after, um, and so it was kind of like a process working with my doctor to kind of like. Talk the fight, fight or flight instinct down. Um, I don't know, but it's but it can be used for the good for good also. Right.
0: Adrenaline does other things for you as well. It height it can heighten your senses and perceptions of things like hearing, yep. visual acuity. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: you are reading on Wikipedia now. No, you? I'm not actually. No,
0: I'll give you I'll give you a prime example. You ever go into back in the clubbing days? Uh Did you ever just know when something something stupid was about to happen and you needed to leave? Uh I was one of those people that usually knew. It's like, something's wrong. It's time to get near an exit door.
3: That's interesting. You know, one time on Michigan Avenue, someone tried to take my purse and... I When the guy passed by me the first time, I thought, something is off here. Something doesn't feel right. And I it was very cold outside, but I put my hood of my parka down because I wanted to be able to see from all sides. And I just thought, something's not right. Something's off. So maybe it's, yeah, that, I suppose.
0: One other item. During the encounter where they tried to take your purse, mm-hmm. did you have any change in the perception of time passing? Um, I don't did it, think did so. Did it seem to you like... The whatever happened took longer than you actually thought it did?
3: No, but I did have that experience during this week during free fall of the skydive because I was in free fall for 55 seconds.
0: And you thought it was how long?
3: Well, I I don't know. I knew it was going to be about that long. But later, I thought about all the things I thought of during that time. And it was just a list of stuff, easily two hours of material, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is really interesting. I mean, they say, you know, your um Like when you're in a car crash or something, they say your life flashes before your eyes, which I've kind of experienced just of thoughts moving very fast, but a lot of thoughts all at once Um, in a car crash I was in about 10 years ago. So I did experience that. But it was this was like that, but positive, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's why, we've, that's why we've called all the smart people to come into the show tonight and talk about it. Well, we were going to have uh, a member of the Golden Knights team uh, join us and talk about their program. Uh, they have lots of super important things to do, so they were unable to join us tonight. But shout out to them because they really uh, made that experience so positive and they were just so on top of everything. And I'm sure they're, you're going to see a ton of them during the um, Air and Water show because those are the guys out there doing cool tricks and they have like smoke colored smoke coming out of their ankles and all these cool things they have a lot of cool videos if you go to youtube and look at that of them doing unbelievable things so what they did with me that was like a boring day at the office that was like a case of the mondays the
4: video of you
1: is
3: really cool and worth checking out it's at wgnradio.com i mean i felt like i was there it was like it was amazing it was cool they (laughs) the interview right right before they're like how's it going i'm like i'm good i'm just ready to go trying to like keep myself cool and the only moment I think you can see fear on me is when they say, and you're only at 5,000 feet and we have a long way to go. And I was like, great. Okay, good. Great. <laughs> That's the only
0: time. You, are t- you, d- you don't give yourself enough credit. You are tougher than you think you are.
3: Yeah. I think I'm tougher than I think it. I mean, I thought I was t- Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that.
0: Because you didn't back out of it.
3: No way. No way was like going You effort.
0: said you were going to. Well, you said you were going to go. Yes. You showed up. You yes. suited up. And even as you're, as the two you're getting ready to go out the out the side of the plane, you don't have a truly panicked look on your face. It's kind of like, okay. No, in Bring fact, it on. you can
3: see in the video, my I jump my chin out and I'm smiling because I'm like, all right, like the second before we go out the door, my chin is out. And I've got this grin like, all right, it's on.
0: Although <laughs> although, although your, your jump master did have to move your arms around no, and get your hands in the thumbs up position.
3: No, he said, I'll tell you when to let go of your, he said, like, hold your harnesses like your thumbs are underneath them, like suspenders, and I'll tell you when to let go of them. And he tapped me on the shoulder and I didn't. That didn't quite register because I was taking in the view. So he did, like, tug at my elbows, mm-hmm. and then I opened my okay. arms. Yeah, I don't remember him tapping me on the shoulder at all because I was sitting there going, oh, my gosh, look at all this stuff.
0: If I'd only brought my own camera. Well. That might have been too much. Yes. Might have been. I don't <laughs>
3: anyway. know. Anyway, so we're going to go to news, uh, take a break, all that good stuff, and then when we come back, we are talking with biological anthropologist Dr. Kristen Krieger from Loyola University of Chicago all about the role of adrenaline and what what it in the heck it's for, why it's helped us survive this long, and what do we still need it for? She's going to answer all those questions for us back in just a bit on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth and this is a Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. Always very grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday evening with me. So as ever, we take one big topic and then we invite a bunch of very smart people in here to help us talk about it and think about it and wrestle with it and see where we land by the end of the show. So that topic tonight is adrenaline. We're talking all about what motivates us to run towards adrenalizing experiences or avoid them and all of that stuff that do we challenge ourselves or skip the challenge and all the things that, that adrenaline powers in our lives. That's what we're talking about tonight. Joining us now is regular contributor to the program, Dr. Kristen Krieger. She is from Loyola University, Chicago. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much for being here tonight. So where to begin when we think about uh, when we think about adrenaline? Because because your uh, your area of study is all biological anthropology. So you're looking at ancient peoples and and what motivated them, what they did, and how they did it. Um, so when we think about adrenaline, immediately we think I mean I anyway I think of like well that probably helped us outrun crazy beasts and woolly mammoths and saber toothed tigers, but I'm sure it's so much more complex than that. Well,
1: it can be more complex than that as long as you have the lines of evidence to support it. And that's one of the issues when you're dealing with fossils is how do you interpret the fossil record, right? Because you only have the bones. And Mm -hmm. so we can't test necessarily to know whether hominids or human ancestors had, you know, adrenaline rushes or, you know, that helped them survive on the savanna or helped them survive glacial periods against saber-toothed tigers, right? But there are some instances where we know we were eaten okay (laughs) and so we know we didn't survive so obviously there's there's a little bit of flaw in the system somewhere Mm -hmm. where sometimes we didn't outrun the predator those individuals did obviously didn't live they didn't survive and they have less greater reproductive success as darwin would say and so they you know They didn't, their lines, their genes, their behaviors weren't supported. Ah. And so that's kind of the, the crux that we look at is we're always looking at behavior in terms of adaptability. Survivability and greater reproductive success. So, okay. if those behaviors supported those things, we will still see them today. Mm-hmm. Normally, um, if they're not supported, then not so much.
3: Right, not so much <laughs> indeed. So, um, then when we think of all the things that adrenaline powers for for a human being, whether a modern one or an ancient one, what we're you know we're thinking of predators and things like that. But what other essential parts uh, or essential roles, rather, does adrenaline play?
1: So adrenaline is interesting because it's a hormone. And it's a hormone that's secreted by directly from a brain signal. So there's something that can happen that's either real, like a predator, a fire, an earthquake, something like that, where it's a real threat, or it can be imagined. So when you think of adrenaline today... And something like maybe seeing your, your boss's name pop up in your email box and you instantly get that kind of you know, gut feeling or that mm-hmm. rush. Right? Sure. And, and sometimes it, it's, a, it's an acute stress response. And so sometimes it can be something that's real or something is imagined, right? Where you're, you're placing kind of a, a perception on, on what you think is going to happen and that can trigger that stress response.
3: And so we read a lot now, I think, about adrenal fatigue. We say, oh, our modern lives, we're too connected, we're wearing ourselves out, we're not, you know, disconnecting enough. What is the ancient equivalent of that? Or was that even an issue until just now? I don't know if it was,
1: to me, when I think about behaviors of the past, right, and I study Neanderthals specifically, when I think about what their life was like and the adaptations that they needed to survive to me it it wasn't it wasn't necessarily different from what we deal with um they dealt with different perceived Uh, predation, right? It could be real predation. It could be something that's imagined that would kickstart that. They had the same types of stress that we do, right? How am I going to eat? How am I going to feed my children? Where am I going to lay my head tonight? They had the same
3: sorts of issues, but
1: it's just in a different sort of Mm -hmm. context today.
3: Interestingly, I was speaking with um, the head of um, astronomy education from the Adler about the upcoming eclipse, and she was talking about when the eclipse was misunderstood, and when people didn't know what that was, the behavior that that elicited, because people thought it was literally a hole in the sky, and that it was all about to go very south very quickly, and and I'm sure that was another time in which people long ago went, oh boy, I gotta, I gotta go, I'm out, And and probably it elicited that kind of adrenalized... Response
1: absolutely, and it can. It doesn't even have to be something as major as an eclipse. But when you think about, you know, climate change, or when you think about droughts, or major floodings, or storms, that was another trigger of what in the world's going on.
3: And, you know, that would cause stress. It sure. would cause that stress response. Certainly. Certainly. See, I think this stuff is so interesting, especially when we're talking about uh, roles that are things that happen with with primitive peoples and ancient people and how our bodies are using those things today. I think that is fascinating stuff. So. All the stuff you have uh, that you work on is so interesting to me. We're talking with Dr. Kristen Krieger. She is from Loyola University, Chicago. We're going to take a little break and continue this conversation all about adrenaline when we come back here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth, and this is a Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. We're talking all about adrenaline. There's a lot to that. Sometimes when we say that word, we think of uh, the adrenaline junkie. People like Evil Knievel jumping off of stuff and into stuff or tightroping like Nick Walinda, things like that. But we can also think about it in the hormonal way and what it's helped us to do throughout time as a species and all of that and what it's helped us outrun and what it's helped us survive and all of that. So to think through that part, we are joined by regular contributor to this program, Dr. Kristen Krieger. She is from Loyola University of Chicago and she's a biological anthropologist and she studies the coolest stuff. You probably remember her from the tattoo show when she was talking about a... Okay. was it a 5,300 year old tattoo? Correct. Yeah, memory for numbers, which was such a cool story. I keep thinking about that guy frozen with all of his tattoos, which just sounds very cool. Okay, but back to adrenaline. So when we, uh, a lot of times, uh, when we think about uh, human evolution, and all that, I think our, our brains go to primates pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we learn about, about adrenaline when we look at Primate, our close relatives, the primates.
1: Yeah, so we're limited in the data that we can glean from fossils, right? Because right. we only have the bones. But with primates, it's different, especially when we look at living primates, because we use them and we use it often, as models for human behavior. So there's been just a spectrum of things that we look at, everything from fight or flight, which is what we'll go in more in depth about now, compassion, empathy, grief, aggression, all these kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? So we can turn to our primate relatives and take a look at you know, when do they have fight or flight responses, what do they do, under what circumstances, and we can use that to infer the same types of behaviors in human ancestors. Sure. So we see this in primates. We see fight or flight. But what's interesting is people are now starting to look at differences between males and females. And it's not only males and females, non-human primates, but also in humans. And there's been some discussion, and it was probably about 10 years ago or so, and and this is a, a subject that's in evolutionary psychology, where men were more proposed to participate in fight or flight. And that it was directly related to hormones, specifically testosterone. Mm-hmm. Females, on the other hand, the model went that females did not participate so much in fight and flight, but it was called tend and befriend. I'm writing that down. I love that. That's so interesting. <laughs> so the the idea here, right? So this is all modeling and this is mm-hmm. what we do in, in paleoanthropology when we don't really have uh, you know, people to talk to. Sure. Is that females survived better if they tended to their children, kept them quiet, were able to hide themselves from predators, and also befriended others in their own species. So, other primates, the whole idea of strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. And so now this is not universally accepted. This is an idea, um, but it's an interesting one because it's the first one that took a look at uh, sex differences and how females and males will
3: respond to those acute stress episodes. That's very interesting. And so when we, wow, I have a million questions now about that. That's really interesting because I think a lot of times we think of things being um, very socialized by culture and gender roles and and very modern human expectation, but that that's kind of an interesting complication in that conversation. Absolutely,
1: and I think it's really important because in evolutionary psychology they do have this tendency to be reductionist. They mm-hmm. tend to say, "Okay, we are a product of our biology. Our biology is our destiny." Where an anthropologist will come in and say, "Well, not so fast, right. not so fast," because. The, the biology is not a destiny, right, as far as bio, uh, anthropologists are concerned, but it's perhaps a central tendency, mm-hmm. right? It's an average, but we're constantly interacting that biology with social behaviors, cultural behaviors, uh, emotional behaviors, mental behaviors. All of those things intertwine and interact with our biology right? So, so they're taking a look at this on a purely biological perspective. And, and what they found was that right those females, they, they are heavily invested in raising their offspring. So they have increased uh, paternal investment, mm-hmm. uh, parental investment. Right. And uh, so they're making babies, they're delivering babies, they're lactating so they're feeding babies and they're carrying them around non-human primates will carry their babies around for months to years and so because of that difference because of that increased investment they have to protect those children those offspring from dangers so you don't necessarily have that imagined threat mm-hmm. that you sometimes see with humans, but you see more of the, the real threats. So, sure. so things like predators is really what the focus of, is of this model. Right. Men on the other hand don't have that investment. Non-human primates, they, they don't invest as much in their, in their children, not all of them. And so they will go more on the fight or flight hmm. side of things. And it's interesting how they choose, right? Because they do have agency. Sure. And so the idea is that they will fight only if they think they're going to win, <laughs> That's interesting, right? Okay. If they think they're going to get their rear ends handed to yeah. them, they will tuck tail and run. Up. They're going to peace out. <laughs> you got it. You got it. And you, you can see this on Michigan Avenue tonight at about 2 a.m. Right.
3: right. Right.
1: You always see them posturing like they're going to fight with each other. Mm-hmm. But nine times out of 10, they usually kind of break it off and realize, "Eh, this isn't worth the hurt that's going to happen in the morning. Sure. See the same thing with non-human primates.
3: Interesting. That is really interesting. What about um, things that perhaps we think of as being completely human? I'm thinking of daredevil stuff. Do we see any of that in primates? Do they tend to try to do things like that?
1: Not really. Uh, There was actually some interesting primatology work done this summer looking at chimpanzees and swimming, Okay, right? Um, Chimpanzees are interesting because they're our closest, Mm -hmm. uh, genetically closest uh, relative to us, and so we tend to look at them more closely. Um, It was always thought that they didn't like water, and they didn't like to swim, and it's been documented now that they enjoy playing, and they smile. They seem to get enjoyment out of it. Um, what's also interesting is that they will participate in very aggressive and sometimes deadly interactions, especially the males. So it's not necessarily a daredevil type of mm-hmm. thing where I'm going to go jump off out of a tree for the thrill of it. Sure. But they
3: do participate in what's called risky behavior. Okay. Right? So that's probably how I would... And that's more about being alpha and showing your dominance than, than it is about... I wonder if I can do that. <laughs> right? Exactly. And less, hey, y'all watch this. <laughs> and a little more, I'm the boss here. That yeah. makes sense. That's fair enough. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, the, that looking at kind of the sex differences there between, between male and female primates. That is really interesting. And there's some pushback to it. Too. I'm sure. Yeah. There's pushback. I'm sure immediately there was a lot of academic concern about, whoa, hold up. Especially from males. Cause they're like,
1: whoa, 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 male humans, we invest in our children. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? So, Uh, and there is, right? Sure. We we see male uh, investment in their offspring, of course. We see men being nurturing and and good parents, absolutely. And befriending each other. Mm -hmm. You see that in, in primates as well, where males will form together, but there's always kind of the underlying... A balance of cooperation and competition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, not that you don't see that with females, because you sure. certainly do, but it's not necessarily physical as it is with males. It tends to be more physical with the uh, male non human primates, where for females, it tends to be more gossipy.
3: Oh, interesting. Right. Bullying. Right, right. Interesting. That's a whole other topic we got (laughs) to talk about at some point. Well, kind of, this is an aside from the topic at hand of adrenaline tonight, but as you're talking about um, the female primates caring for their young and investing all that time in caring for them, immediately I think, um, is it just a human problem where you see a parent neglecting a child? Or do, do we see that in primates too? Oh, we see it in primates. Absolutely.
1: And we don't necessarily understand why right? We can't just go and talk to them or ask them. Um, but yes, you do see neglect. You do see sometimes they just want nothing to do with their children. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, not to, to make them sound callous, mm-hmm. but on the flip side of that, you also will have uh, experiences where the infant
3: will die or the child will die and the mother will still carry it around. I remember that happened at the zoo. I remember that being reported about that that um I think it was a baby gorilla that died, and the mother they had to i think sedate her to get it away from her,
1: yeah exactly Isn't that interesting, yeah,
3: that is so fascinating to study the i mean it seems it seems um i mean what a bummer right that you you don't have the primitive humans around to ask them questions and study them and and find out what made them uh tick but it's interesting in your field how uh you know, both primates and then fossil records kind of converge to tell us all these really interesting things. And then archaeology too. Right. All the, and then their their stuff, right? Yeah. And then all <laughs> the stuff they made. Right. All the stuff that they made. You've got it. That is really very interesting stuff. And so uh, when we think about adrenaline, Uh we think a lot about daredevil stuff, we think about uh avoiding daredevil stuff, but indeed there's a lot more to it, as with any topic that we pick on the show, we start to unpack it a little bit, we pull on a string on that sweater and suddenly things start to unravel and lots of interesting rabbit holes emerge, and I think that is just what has occurred thinking about primates and fight or flight and all of those things. As ever, thanks so much for being with us, Doctor Kristen Krieger from Loyola University, Chicago. We bring her in anytime we're like, what made people act that way? Indeed that's what that's what made people act that way so we are going to take a little break get you to news all that good stuff back in just a bit we're going to be talking about the intersection of motivation emotion sports and activity we're going to look at adrenaline from that place next back in just a bit on 720 WGN 20 WGN. It's a Saturday night special. This is Amy Guth and tonight we're talking all about adrenaline. What makes us do the things we do around adrenaline. It's powerful stuff. It is very powerful stuff. We were just talking with Dr. Kristen Krieger who is a biological anthropologist talking about ancient people and primates and how, uh, how adrenaline plays out with them. You know what? We convinced her to stay so she's going to hang out for a little bit tonight and that is very very exciting. On the other side of news which we're going to go to here in just a bit, we are going to be talking with Dr. David Conroy from Penn State. He works all around motivation and emotion as it pertains to activity and sports and all that kind of stuff. So that's a really interesting intersection to me, particularly as it pertains to adrenaline and very extreme sports and what makes maybe one person want to not jog around the block and another person want to like jump off a water tower. I don't know. These are things we're going to ask him about. So stick around for that. And then a little bit later in the program, we are going to be talking with a BASE jumper who survived an unbelievable accident, but it ended up saving his life. Bear with me. It is a wild story, and I cannot wait for you to hear all about it from him. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth, and this is the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight, as ever. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday evening with me. So we are talking about adrenaline tonight. We always pick one big topic, and we start pulling it apart to see where we land, see what's happening, and we see uh, we see it very differently by the end of the show than where we started. That's for sure. So adrenaline is the topic. Particularly, what motivates us to do things that that create adrenaline, or what motivates us to stay the heck away from things that create adrenaline, because I think there's, there's a couple different sides here. So we're joined now by phone. Uh, we have David Conroy. He's from Penn State. He works in the area of kinesiology, and he studies, particularly he studies motivation around activity, which I think is so very fascinating. And so we have him here on the phone now. Hi, how are you? Thanks for being with us tonight.
2: Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you. I appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday. So when we talk about motivation, when we talk about uh, adrenaline and, and activity and where all of those things intersect, where do we even begin looking as it pertains to your discipline?
2: Well, I, you know, listening to your introduction, I was really struck by it because I think what you're getting at is the the heart of the matter, and that is, you know, What's the thrill we're getting from activities we do? And with physical activities and exercise, we've kind of talked ourselves in circles around that and actually gotten a little bit off, off the scent, if you will, because a lot of the times when we're trying to get people to be more active and try new things, we focus really hard on making them work and making them do things that are boring. Um, you know, we have people tracking their activities. We have them setting these goals we have them repeating things that are kind of mindless you know as far as the exercises go and we've gotten away from what we all started out doing as kids which is just moving to have fun so when you start talking about adrenaline uh, you know i'm hearing that as where's the thrill for me Mm. and that in my world means where's the fun what's the reward that i'm going to get and i think that a lot of times we, you know on a day to day basis, we miss that we We would do a lot better to think more like you are in terms of where is the thrill, where is the fun in this activity
3: right. So so when we think about, you know, we, we use that phrase adrenaline junkie, and, and I, I think that's a problematic one because, A, I think we should not joke about things like heroin addiction, but also, you know, I, I do think there are elements there of what draws people to adrenaline and uh, what what keeps them away from it. But but I think it's interesting when we're talking about activity, um, sometimes even our language reinforces ways or reinforces us to not or maybe encourages is the better word encourage us encourages us to not participate in it you know we say things like oh i gotta go do cardio oh i gotta go get on the treadmill right
2: well just the phrase working out i mean mm. it's work <laughs> that's true what happened to play uh, what, why is that not fun in and of itself you know we we leave work to work out that doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> right that's so, a very i mean good it, point. it makes it makes sense that it it's not all that appetizing of an option. So you wonder why people aren't seeking out more of these experiences and maybe it is the way we frame them. Maybe we should emphasize the fun, the enjoyment that people get. But you know, to take that one step further. You know, we have this phenomenon in our world where there's certain times of the year where people get really interested in physical activities and like new year's is a great example. Uh, Birthdays are another one, but you say this next year ahead is going to be different for me. I'm going to change things. I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to be more fit. I'm going to fit into my body better. And, you know, people sign up for gym memberships. They start going um, and doing things and they push themselves so hard and they really work their hearts out and they're miserable. And one of the things we've learned is that when you push too hard physically, when you get into the vigorous domain of activity, it's not a pleasant experience anymore. And what happens is you start feeling increasing levels of displeasure once you cross a certain threshold of intensity. So one of the things that I would really, you know, I always encourage people to do is use your feelings as a barometer for how hard you should work out. And once it stops feeling pleasant, once you stop feeling pleasant, don't push yourself harder yet. <laughs> you know, it's, it, you're much less likely to go back to it if you're feeling miserable while you're doing the activity than if you feel pleasant. So, you know, I, I know that there's some people that crave extreme experiences, but I think those are the exception rather than the rule. For most people out there, it's important to listen to your um, listen to your mind, listen to your body. Find the point at which you stop feeling pleasant, and then just pull back a little bit, and don't work quite as hard. Don't push yourself quite as hard then. That's going to keep you coming back more often.
3: I think um, thousands of people just high fived their radios when you said that. (laughs) You're like,
2: that'd be great.
3: The expert said, "I get to stop working out when it's not fun." Score! (laughs) I think a lot of people just got very excited.
2: But only. (laughs) Only if you come back the next day, <laughs> you know, it's, I important. mean, that's the whole reason for that.
3: <laughs> important detail. That's a very important detail of that, of that. Yeah. So, but you do mention, um, the, the people who are kind of the exceptions to that The people that are, that are into extreme stuff. When you look at people that are like the evil Knievels of the world, the Nick Walindas, things like that. Um, you know, when Nick Walinda walked across the Grand Canyon on that tightrope, there was the big special and everybody, I mean, I, that was the. There are so few times that I think people watch live television anymore when Felix Baumgartner fell out of the sky I watched that on YouTube when Nick Welinda walked across the Grand Canyon I watched that right then because I, I I think everybody was a wreck when you see people who are really drawn to that kind of stuff doing that kind of stuff habitually where where does that fall uh, and, and where, what are your thoughts on that
2: well i you know honestly i don't I think that is so out of The norm for most people, in terms of what they would consider doing, that it's just a different category of behavior altogether. Um, You know, people who are going on tightrope across the Grand Canyon or jumping um, out of space and parachuting down to the ground—that that that is such high-risk behavior that the processes that most of us use to control ourselves aren't really at play anymore right. um, and I think that you know in some senses in some sense, so what yeah excuse me. in some ways it could just be that there's a thrill a reward that comes from doing that for those individuals, but there could also be extrinsic factors you know I mean you get to be on national TV you get sponsorships right. if I remember uh, there was an energy drink that got a lot of attention from sponsoring Felix Baumgartner. So there are many reasons people can do that. The sensation-seeking aspect is probably one of them, but I think there's some factors outside that might drive that as well. And then there's some identity-related elements as well. Um, You know, if this is something that your family has done for generations, maybe you just feel like this is a part of who you are as a person, so you should be trying Things along those lines. Right. I, 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 again, I, I don't think it's what most people would wake up in the morning and think that's the kind of thrill I need to yeah. feel like I lived today.
3: So then, what about the the more attainable and more realistic part of that? What when we're thinking about elite athletes who have um, are able to do you know throw ball like throw a ball really far or run really fast or or bike unbelievable distances or things like that? Um, there's certainly a lot more of them than there are, say, Nick Walinda kind of and Felix Baumgartner types. When we're looking at athletes, um, how does that change with motivation and how to, how, how is motivation approached differently?
2: Well, you know, the, you're you're pulling us back on the spectrum toward every person here, every man, every woman. And the elite athletes are still a different breed than most of us. They, they make sacrifices on a day-to-day basis to uh, see if they can excel, if they can do something that they haven't done before, if others haven't done before on a regular basis. Um As far as the regular person who's trying to, you know, commit to some level of excellence in their activity, it's a balance. I think one of the things that motivates people is that immediate pleasure. Now, I think that's one that we've lost track of um, more than we should over the years. But I think the other piece that the elites have that uh, some of us weekend warriors might have as well is the ability to delay our gratification. You know, you you don't need the immediate win, the immediate excellence, so long as you feel some improvement. And there's been a lot of talk about growth mindsets over the last 10 Mm -hmm. or 20 years. And the idea that people feel successful uh, or people try to orient themselves to feel successful when they're improving, when they're learning, They think that their ability can change through their own hard work and effort. And that's a very different approach than people who think that they just have to come out on top to feel successful, or that their ability can't change, and every time they're measuring themselves against someone else or against an established standard, they find out if they're a winner or a loser. Mm So I I think for most of us, the key for motivation is investing in this process. It's thinking, you know, am I improving today? Could I do something that I couldn't do the day before? Can I do something a little more efficiently, a little better than I did before? And finding those little rewards is oftentimes what sustains people through the hard work that it takes to really become world-class and become excellent in any area. And do you find, you you know, when, when the pleasure isn't there, you still feel that sense of competence coming to you.
3: Yeah. Do you, do you find that, that certain people are more, I don't know, predisposed, I guess, to, um, to that kind of self-discipline, uh, whereas others struggle with it more. I mean, what, or I know some people are, but what is it that, you know, have you been able to isolate kind of what that is that, that makes some of us really motivated and some of us really not.
2: Yeah. And, you know, everybody's motivated. It's just we're motivated for different things. So some people are motivated for efficiency. Some people are motivated to save face. Some people are motivated to grow uh, in new ways. But everyone, like this is a kind of my root assumption, is that everybody's motivated for something. It's when the motivation lo- doesn't sync up with the context that they're in there are sometimes problems and people get frustrated or people around them get frustrated. So, you know, with parents, with young kids, it's not so much about uh, trying to force them into being excellent in a particular domain. It's about helping them to search to find a domain that they want to excel in. Because once you can turn someone loose on an area where they are motivated, whether it's because of their identity or uh, something else, you you won't have to do nearly as much to keep them going. They will sustain themselves in that work. So what is it that helps the elite athletes? What is it that helps, um, you know, anybody who's world-class in their field to excel? You know, it's partly the way that you're socialized to view these achievement situations. Are these going to be threats to you where you're going to feel like less of a person if you do poorly? Or is this an opportunity to grow, to develop, to do something more? Um, and, you know, this goes back to, I mean, we, we've seen studies tracing it back to early childhood and the way parents handle the earliest kinds of competence kids are trying to develop. And what do you reward? What do you praise? How do you give praise? Mm. Uh, these are all factors that shape a worldview, that kids have as they grow into teenagers and young adults and adults. And it can change over time, but you set a a template in place early on that kind of uh, shapes the way you interpret your experiences from then out. So what is it that differentiates the world class from the not world class? Well, in some ways it's the kinds of experiences they've had and the way they interpret them, the meaning they're making out of their um, successes and failures on a day-to-day basis because the people who are world-class don't take what on the surface looks like a failure as being a failure always. They find some way to succeed, even though others may not see that in that experience for them. So they see a way that they got better. They find something they learned that they took away from that experience and they're making um, meaning out of what they did. That makes it worthwhile for them, even though on the surface it might look like it was a failure, like it was um, not what they wanted or a setback. They got something and they took it away from that and they're really good at that. And that's what sustains them through hard work that's not pleasurable, through experiences that on the surface don't look like successes and so on.
3: So that I don't have a gold medal. I should blame my parents is what you're saying about
2: that. No, you don't have a gold medal. if You have learned so much along the way, and you are prepared now to take the next steps to try to get one. Indeed. Um,
3: I don't know what I get this, a gold medal in. That, yeah.
2: Well, radio shows aren't an Olympic event yet. That's yet. But maybe.
3: Fair. In
2: time. <laughs> and that's the word. But that's the word. That's the magic word for achievement motivation. Yet. Mm. because it's not, a, you know, I mean, I have a daughter seven and she was learning to ride her bike in the last couple of years. And she said, I can't ride my bike. And every time I try to get her to say the word yet mm. at the end of that, because I don't want that. I can't do this to be a statement about me. Yeah. I want it to be a statement about the fact that I just need to spend more time practicing. I need to invest a little more effort. So it's the, the yet out yeah. there it's the possibility that exists, and that's, that's what um, I think is so important. Is these superficial failures to everybody else are not failures to people who make meaning out of them, uh, because that that meaning pulls them back into that activity and allows them to invest deeply. And that's how you have a chance at becoming a world class expert. Doesn't guarantee it, obviously, right. but it gives you a chance.
3: Yeah, I I like that a lot. I like yet. That's a powerful, powerful thing to add to the end of sentences for sure. Well, as you were talking about motivation, kind of the different ways that different things motivate different people. The thing I thought about the example was how many people work out very hard right before going on vacation. They're like, I'm going to be on a beach. People are going to look at my body. I'm going to go or right before a wedding or something. They're like, a lot of people are going to be looking at me. I better work out. But then after that vacation, it's like maybe less incentive to work out. You're like, well, it's winter. I'm back in Chicago when it's winter again and no one's looking because I'm wearing a parka right it's that kind of yeah um... But um, so I'm struck by this, too, because we were right before we we called you up, we were talking with Dr. Kristen Krieger from Loyola University. She's a biological anthropologist, and she's still here in studio hanging out with us. And you said a word that she also said. And so I want to put your two disciplines together and kind of see what happens, because you both mentioned the role of play. You mentioned it in terms of motivation. And Dr. Krieger, you mentioned it in terms of um, primate behavior and things that you'll still see that's human-like. And so Hmm. as you're Listening and and as your disciplines kind of collide here, what what comes up for you?
1: Yeah, so to me, when when he was speaking, it, it, to me it was all about the intersection of biology and culture, mm-hmm. right? So I could have all the motivation in the world to throw a football. I am never going to make the NFL. I don't have the biology for it. And so it almost seems as though no, yet, yet, <laughs> right, yet, <laughs> but really no. <laughs> but but to me it's it's kind of like when you have that perfect right serendipitous moment when you have the biology to be that pro athlete or to walk the tightrope right when you have that that physical ability to be able to do it but then you also have that social or cultural advantage of being able to do it having the opportunity yeah. to do it
3: yeah, I mean opportunity is an interesting part of this, right? I mean, um how would you how would you respond to that, Dr. Conroy?
2: Well, I think opportunity is huge. You know, there's three things that go into human behavior change. There's having capability, having motivation, and having opportunity. And without any of those three pieces, you're um shorthanded. So, um yeah, I mean I think there are limitations that are put on us socially in terms of which opportunities which people get, and those have changed over the years. But there, I, I suspect there always will be some uh, segregation of opportunity. But it's you know, it's, there are people who will be trailblazers and create new opportunities, and then there are people who are um, strategists figuring out well which opportunities are available and which ones am I motivated to pursue and most capable of pursuing. Right. And it that's, uh, you know, just a value judgment everybody needs to make for themselves as far as which path is the one they want to pursue. Neither one is easy. I mean, right. to be excellent or break down walls is tough work. So, you know, it's going to be a, a good, fun struggle either way.
4: Right.
3: So if someone listening perhaps is thinking about this topic a lot and thinking, okay, how do I – help my motivation? How do I become more self-disciplined? I want to do bigger things. I want to, you know, double down on athletics or at the gym or take on a, even just maybe something not, not as physical, but something um, just maybe mentally challenging. What advice would you have for them to um, get into that space and adopt that behavior and find ways to make it fun and and all of the things that you described to help them stay motivated?
4: Yeah.
2: One is I would start by finding an activity that you think your effort can make a difference in. So if, if there's something that you think, you know, I've either got talent in this or I don't, um, just scrap it out. That's, that's not something to spend tons of time on because you've got this kind of fixed mindset about what ability is. But if you can find something where you think your efforts make a difference in terms of how successful you'll be with that, then Get into that and invest yourself in learning and improving. Don't worry about whether you finish first or last in a race or whether other people are quicker, stronger, faster than you are. Just look at how you're doing compared to what you've done before, because that creates a self-perpetuating cycle of growth. You can control what you do. You can't control what they do. So just get out there and do you as uh quickly, fast, as strong as you possibly can, and you'll see improvement. It's uh it's and that's I think the kind of thing that would be rewarding and pull you back into an activity even on the days when it isn't fun. But finding something you enjoy and finding something you believe you can improve in through hard work or the and then orienting towards learning and improving. Those are my three things that I turned in I'll throw out there for you.
3: Mm-hmm. I really like that. Find uh, where your effort can make a difference. I like that because there's plenty of things we're like, man, that'd be cool. But to really think about it in that way, I think, is a much smarter approach. That is very interesting. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I really appreciate your time.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. All right, so we're going to take a break here in a second. Get you the news and all that good stuff. That was Dr. David E. Conroy. He's from Penn State, and I think that's such a fascinating discipline that area, that intersection between motivation and, and emotion, and where that crosses with with sports and activity. Because, right, let's face it, we all struggle with that kind of stuff. Get me on a cardio machine, and I'm like, oh my god. If I don't have my earbuds, I'm not having it. I'm not having it, right? I, I won't stay on that treadmill for ten minutes. But if I got really rocking music I will get that treadmill going I'll be on there all day till they kick me off so I hear what he's saying that is very very true and that's very interesting and I loved what he said where effort can make a difference that is interesting I think there's even like business and life lessons in there there's good stuff there all right we're gonna take a break catch you the news all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. That awesome song that's like half electronica and half... Bossa Nova, that's a local band, Faye Ray. That's a good one. Shout out to esteemed producer Lee Graham, for that good find. So, we're talking all about adrenaline tonight on the show. As ever, we pick one big topic and spend the whole evening with very smart people talking all about different aspects of it. So, adrenaline has been the topic tonight. Dr. Kristen Krieger uh, came in and talked to us about biological anthropology and what ancient peoples did and what primates do and how we can learn about. Um, Learn about adrenaline from them. And she's hanging out in studio. She's still with us. And that is super fun and super cool. We were just talking with Dr. David Conroy from Penn State, kind of about the intersection of activity and sports and, and how that, uh, where that intersects with motivation and emotion, which was very, very interesting stuff. But on the topic of adrenaline, because we started the show by saying I just had a big old dose of it by jumping out of an aircraft from almost three miles in the air this week, which was very cool, um, we have to talk to someone who knows a lot about adrenaline, and we are joined now by phone by uh, with by Brandon Lillard, who has done a ton, and by ton, I mean like thousands of skydives and hundreds of base jumps and big surf, surfs, big waves, and does all kinds of cool, cool things that we all just wish we could do. Brandon, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us tonight.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: I appreciate your time. Well, so, uh, you know, when people Google you, there is a, a video that comes up very high, and that is uh, uh, a really fascinating and unfortunate part of your story, but it ended up being rather fortunate, and that was uh, a base jump that did not go particularly well but ended up saving your life. Tell us about that, yeah.
4: if you would. Well, I was um, I was on a base jumping trip, and we ended up in... Provo, utah at a at a i think i believe the place is called box canyon and um it was a relatively low cliff compared to all the other cliffs i jumped off um and me and another guy were jumping and he jumped first and landed and i don't know if you saw in the video where he yelled back up to me um, you can't do any worse than that. Oh <laughs> and of boy! of course, I had to prove him wrong. Uh,
3: yeah, I'm sure he doesn't say that anymore. So, when you say lower cliff, how how high up was it?
4: it I th- I want to say it was like it was no lower than 300 feet, but I don't think it was any higher than about 350 feet.
3: Okay. So you, so he yells that, which he will so never he, yell he, again. I'm sure.
4: Yeah. Well, he yelled that, and then I jumped, and my parachute came out, but. Um, As you know, after your skydiving experience the other day, parachutes fly in one direction and mine was twisted. So instead of flying me away from the cliff, it flew me directly backwards into the cliff. And after a couple, a couple, a couple smacks down the cliff and the parachute ripping and, um, you know, spinning and falling, um, then I hit the ground and then it was, it was lights out for well, it wasn't like I mean, I have no memory from the moment I hit the ground for about a month.
3: Wow. But, so you remember um, you remember hitting the side of the cliff and, and everything up
4: until yeah, the I, re- I remember everything until the last impact on the ground. And then I mean, when I woke I don't even remember waking up in the hospital, but um, my girlfriend and one of my best friends who I've known for twenty five, thirty years flew up to Utah to, you know, make sure I was going to survive. And I didn't even know who they were. I didn't even know my own name. Wow. And then. but
3: uh, No, go go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, no,
4: go ahead. Um, and miraculously, you know, something like that, that should have killed me. Um, I ended up with a couple of broken ribs and, you know, cuts and nothing more, no, no more in the cut department than you would have got on a skateboard accident or something. But, you know, I, I had a brain injury, but because of everything, you know, and I didn't even know who I was, I, they put me in a, they did a full body scan on me and found that my aorta, which is the hose leaving your heart, the artery leaving your heart with all the fresh new blood, mine unrelated was about to explode. And there's no symptoms, there's no pain, it just bursts in, you bleed out internally in a minute. So you... You had it on the way.
3: Right. So you had any minute in your future, you had an aortic aneurysm about to happen, but it did not happen because you had this so much medical intervention.
4: Well, it didn't. I mean, I don't know why it didn't happen. They said it should have ruptured when I hit the ground. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just pure act of God to make sure that it right. didn't. And then, uh, then they found it and they couldn't. They flew me. I flew. I live in San Diego, and I I flew home from Utah about ten days after the accident, and I still really didn't. I barely remember that. And one of my first memories is going to the heart doctor in San Diego, and him explaining it to me, and it was a bit confusing. And I, I asked him. I said, "Well, I don't really understand." And he said, "Imagine you hook your fire hose up or your garden hose up to a fire hydrant," and I you know I was I was kind of a zombie. I was like, "Yeah," and he said what would happen? i go, I don't know. And he goes, well, the hose would start swelling and then it would burst. And I, he said, your heart's like the fire hydrant. Your aorta is the garden hose. Wow. And I remember saying, well, how do you, how do you fix it? And you know how right. doctors are. They just, they just, Oh, well, we just cut your sternum right. in half and <laughs> you stop right. your heart. um, And we fix it. And then we put you all back together. And I remember, I don't know. I mean, in, in not such, politically correct words, I was like, I'm not having open heart surgery and he laughed. And that my first really clear memory is him laughing. And he's like, You you got six months tops. Wow. So it base jumping means- eat really being really bad at base jumping saved my life
3: (laughs) (laughs) right right well i mean what what so so you no longer base jump you i mean although i would say you might be the luckiest person i've ever met in my life you you have shelved base jumping but you still do lots of other uh adrenaline type
4: activities um I, i i don't know if i would i mean skydiving yes um surfing yes motorcycles yes but Um, base jumping. Yeah, I'm done with that. That's, that's, uh, I used my one golden Willy Wonka ticket or my get out of jail free card. Right. I don't think I, I don't, I don't want to push the, push the odds on that one.
3: Right. Right. Uh, tempting fate quite, quite a bit there. Yeah. So, but leading up to that, um, you did so many, both skydiving and, and base jumps. And and so talk to me a bit about what led you into those and what really made you kind of hooked on doing them that that compelled you to do so many of them.
4: Um, well, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, 100 base jumps is really, I was, you know, still in the beginning stages of my base jumping. Um, skydiving, I would say I'm, you know, middle of the road. I mean, you know, a, a thousand-ish jumps. Um, but what led me to it was, you know, it always it always looks really cool and exciting when you see it on TV or something. Sure. And I was I was eating in a in a restaurant and there's a there's like a little postcard and I don't remember what the postcard was for, but it was actually a guy I knew, a picture of him running out the door of an airplane, and I I remember holding it up, going, gosh, I want to do that. And my buddy who I was with, he's like, "Well, you should ask him. He's walking in right now." And that guy on the postcard happened to be walking in the door. And I was like, "Hey, Bob, I want to go do this." And he's like, "Okay, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning." And so I barely slept that night. And then the next morning, he picked me up, and I went and did a tandem just like you. Mm-hmm. I wasn't as I wasn't as excited or brave as you. I was terrified. <laughs> when the plane took off. I was. I remember thinking to myself, what did I just get myself into?
3: (laughs) Oh, I had that thought. (laughs) No, I had that thought too. There's a a bit more candid video on on Facebook that I took right after I was on the ground and got the flight suit off and I was just kind of sitting there watching people land. Um, And I I was talking about all the emotions. I was kind of naming them. And one of them I called the, you know, one emotion is what in the heck am I about to do I, only I didn't say heck at all I, I, I describe that yeah. much more graphically um, so when we talk about um, adrenaline and, and people that that do things like jump off of stuff and jump out of stuff um, what, what do people get wrong who have never experienced it what do people maybe there's a false narrative out there or something like that but what kind of drives you crazy when you hear people say uh, and you know they just are not getting it
4: me personally I just think that that the people that, the people that don't get it, that are just, you know, and, and fair enough to each his own. If if someone's like, no, never, I'll never do that. But the people that are, that think it's like, Oh, you're, you're crazy. That's stupid. They just, I don't feel like they've done the research or understand what's actually happening. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, when in skydiving it's, probably safer than driving on the freeway in California.
3: I looked that up. It is. (laughs) Before I jumped, it is. (laughs) It's much safer. I looked at the likelihood of all of this other terrible stuff that could happen to you. When I was first invited back in May by the army to jump with them, I was like, let me do some homework here. I said yes, but then I was like, let me do some homework. And it was like, more likely to be, you know, eaten by a whale Like, all kind of stuff that, like, that's never going to happen to me. Watch. I just jinxed myself and, like, (laughs) I'm going to be eaten by a whale. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, right? The way people kind of talk about this kind of stuff. There's some people that just go, no way. That's crazy. I can't believe you did that. And I found myself a little defensive about that this week. I found myself a little bit like, and and I've said things, I've probably been very insufferable, but I've said things like, I think you would surprise yourself. Because I think it's kind of in everybody, but then people are just like, "Oh God, you're that person now!" <laughs> like trying to get everybody to skydive, right? Do you run into that too, Brandon?
4: Yeah, I, I do a bit, and, and honestly, I'm probably guilty of kind of trying to push people over over that little, you know, that fear barrier, just because it's fun to watch people in that situation and see how they react. But I, I, it doesn't. Honestly, it doesn't bother me. And I mean, there's people that I think there's people that just. Have a different mindset. They're like that, they're they're not interested in that. And maybe they've never, or, or maybe they get that. And I don't know what it is. There's probably some sort of, um, you know, endorphins or something you get after. Like I think it's for me, it was always the adrenaline was always so high. Like when you're there's base jumps where you have to climb these gigantic antennas, and um, you know it's it's terrifying, and you get up there and you're you're just like just there's no way I'm climbing down this thing. So I'm jumping (laughs) and then you land. And then once the adrenaline, I feel like it's almost like the adrenaline crash that feels so good. Right. Once you get, once you you don't have that, like you're not like twitching anymore from the adrenaline, but you're just like, Oh yeah. And you sleep so good that night. And I mean, I have a few videos of me. Like I used to, uh, in one of my first few base jumps, I would drive from my house eight or nine hours Mm -hmm. Sleep in a hotel. Wake up at four in the morning. Climb an antenna that t- takes, you know, and you and it's illegal. So you have to sneak under all these fences and gates and whatnot. And then you climb this thing, and it's the most it's the most physically taxing thing I've ever done. It takes It takes me like two hours, and if you fall, you die. Mm-hmm. And then you get up there and you jump and you go eat breakfast, and then I would drive eight or nine hours. Off. <laughs>
3: No big deal. That's a Monday. That's fine. <laughs> but
4: but the drive home was a was I you know you feel so good.
3: Yeah, right. And so does that sense of um, that that post event adrenaline. Does that change over time as you had as you started doing more and more of these? You know, here I have the perspective of only having done the one skydiving event, but you have have so many under your belt. Did that did that adrenaline crash change or or differ as time went on?
4: Mm -mm. I think, I think it changed a little bit depending on what I was doing, but there was always, and I, for me anyways, and I'm sure it's different for everybody, but for me, it was, it was, it almost felt like a sense of accomplishment. Like you're walking away from getting beat up by a giant gorilla or something, you know, like that's the feeling that it gave me. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah.
4: And, and that's the same with, you know, that's the same way it affects me for, anything I do, you know, surfing or, or riding my dirt bike or anything that, you know, that is challenging to me, but the adrenaline after that, and I don't know if I'm, I'm using the correct term, like the adrenaline crash or whatever, but after the afterwards is, is the thing that I always look forward to.
3: Yeah, I I totally get that. And so as you have uh, experienced these various and types of, of adrenaline crashes and, and experiences, um, do you feel like it trickled out into other areas of your life because that's a thing I've heard a lot of people say that uh, once they started base jumping that that it changed their perspective or their courage or things like that in in completely unrelated ways?
4: Um, I, yeah, I think it for me anyways, I can only speak for myself, but I think it made me really appreciate just the fact that I'm able to do these things and just just appreciate like you know, a, a sunny day, even if I'm not doing these things, like, you know, I'm, I would always be thinking like, Oh, today'd be a good day to jump. or I want to have the surface today. Or, uh, we should go to the Marcross track today. You know, like just it, it put, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is it put that stuff ahead of like, you know, like, Oh, well, I got to do this. I need to send these emails for work. Uh, I'll do it, I'll do it tonight when I can't do this other stuff.
3: Yeah. I completely get that. I, I canceled a meeting that I, that I had on the calendar for right after the skydive. Someone was like, you're not going to care about that meeting. I was like, no, no, I really got to do it. they're like, trust me, cancel that meeting. And I canceled the meeting on that advice. And then later I thought, Oh, thank God I canceled that meeting. Cause I, I couldn't even remember to check email for two days. I was too busy like, yeah. living and looking at things and being happy.
4: <laughs> and, and honestly, after, after all the stuff I had to go through, yeah. Um, i i still i'm still on I'm still unsure of where I ended, but I was kind of concerned on whether I was gonna come back and be like i'm you i'm unstoppable, nothing can stop me, you know, and just be completely bananas unsafe and you know borderline nut job or be the other way and be scared of everything and i think now I'm I don't know. I'm, I still don't know that m- my mental jury is out on on where I stand now. But, you know, I, I'm I'm definitely uh, I'm definitely done base jumping.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
4: I guess that's the, on- the only uh, the only thing. But that being said, I mean, the, you know, I know a guy who had a base jumping accident who was flying his wingsuit and he flew into some trees and he lived and he's back doing it again
3: well I know i also i know someone who uh went skydiving to get over a divorce her parachute didn't open she hit trees and the person that she uh the e r physician that treated her and and helped uh set her broken leg is now her husband so there's that Wow <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a Jeez, romantic I, little story
4: I'd, I'd skydiving <laughs> um saves people's romance life
3: that's right it's 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 like the the most it's the matchmaker is what it is <laughs> it does, there all you kinds go. Of, does all kinds of things well um so glad that you're okay and uh probably yeah probably for the best with with no base jumping but that said i still think your luck is unbelievable so you know like if you told me to put money on a horse i might do it <laughs> just on your word uh, on your hunch uh,
4: don't do, don't do that i'm a, I'm a terrible gambler I'm a worse gambler than I am a base jumper.
3: Okay, so no. (laughs) No on that. All right. Well, thank you for talking with us tonight, and uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of a Saturday evening to talk with us, Brandon Lillard.
4: No problem. Thanks for having me, and hopefully it was not too boring.
3: Not at all. It was fascinating. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great night. All right, so we are going to take a little break here in just a bit and uh, wrap things up, turn things over to Dave Hoekstra, Amy Guth, on the Saturday Night Special. We're talking all about adrenaline back in just a bit on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it is the Saturday Night Special. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks for being with us. Well, we have been talking all about adrenaline tonight. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go jump off more stuff. Well, we have run through a lot of different topics with Adrenaline too, right? We talked with, uh, we were just talking with Brandon Lillard, who is a base jumper and a skydiver and a surfer and motocross and does all these things, and he had a very unfortunate base jumping accident, but it ended up saving his life, which was a fascinating story. I mean, he he's low-key about it, but I'm saying, like, that guy has unbelievable luck right there. He should he should probably go buy a bunch of lotto tickets because he'd probably win. So we were just talking with him about base jumping and that experience and all that, which sounds very exhausting, but yeah, I've, as I've been saying all week, I'm, I'll try anything now. Uh, we were a little bit earlier, we were talking with Dr. David Conroy from Penn State about where emotion and motivation and sports and activity intersect. And all night, Dr. Kristen Krieger from Loyola University has been hanging out with us. She's a biological anthropologist and regular contributor to this program that helps us understand what the heck made us act that way with our primitive ancestors. And then we look at primates and all that stuff to understand human behavior a little bit. So as we we have um talked about all this stuff and looked at all these different things um what what came up for you when you when we were listening just now when we were listening to to brandon lillard talk about uh all the stuff that he does i thought it was interesting how something seemed low-key that was. i was like i don't know that that sounds i mean just climbing the thing for the base jump sounds like that would be really exhausting
1: well and to me it would be the the fact that it's illegal well right? there's that <laughs> another level that takes it to another level as far as i'm concerned right right
3: but but Brandon it, Lillard, it, not his real name. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that's my gift to you, Brandon. <laughs> and, and the motocross was just tossed in, right? It was just tossed in, like no big deal. I right. do motocross too, right? So I'm I'm interested. Like he seems like a person that's very risk tolerant, um, and and really can stomach a lot of a lot of risk because he sees the reward at the end of it. Because he sees there's this big adrenaline hit and drop that's going to be great. I'm also really interested in people that avoid things like that, that avoid, um, that are just not risky people that want to kind of stay in the comfort zone. Totally fine. No judgment. But I think that's interesting. I just think that's, you know, I'm always fascinated what makes some people do something one way and, and the rest of us do something a different way, which I think is really interesting. Different adaptive strategies. Right. Right. Which is something you see with humans with primates with all kinds of all behavior right right absolutely which is again so interesting and as you were saying at the if we rewind to put a kind of bookend on this uh the groups that did not do so well with that adaptive strategy we don't see them (laughs) around anymore no no we don't yeah they didn't make it they were they uh the the brontosaurus got them (laughs) Or the saber-tooth or whatever
1: adios homo erectus. adios neanderthals <laughs> That's- unfortunately
3: right right so uh, lots of interesting stuff and as ever as we close down the show we're left with even more questions and more rabbit holes to travel through than we started at the top of the show but as we have been thinking about adrenaline and motivation things that challenge us things that drive us to one to experience exhilarating stuff or that drives us to totally avoid it, even if it's as simple as getting on the treadmill like we were talking about with Dr. Conroy. It is all so fascinating when we think about what makes us what makes us do the things we do, what makes us avoid the things we avoid, and what makes us strive to be more. That's the part I'm always super interested in. So we're going to take a break. We're going to get you to news and hand things over to Dave Hoekstra. Thanks for being with us tonight. Back next week on the Saturday Night Special here on 720 WGN.